Good afternoon. Good to see all of you. In your bulletin, you should have a loose leaf plus um, a sermon handout for today. If you can take that out, it would give you a steer as to where the sermon is heading this afternoon. And do keep your Bible open as well to uh, Acts uh, chapter 2, the passage that was just read for us a short while ago. Pentecost. Well, today is the day of Pentecost. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of the word Pentecost. Even as you listen to Connor reading the passage in Acts chapter 2 earlier on, what was going through your mind? Well, Luke describes uh, what happened that day. You had sound like a violent wind tongues of fire appearing and resting on the people. And then these same people speaking in tongues. And you wonder what's going on. And you know what? You won't be alone. Uh, because the people who are not part of this group wondered too. You see that in verse 12. This, they asked, what does this mean? And then Peter tries to explain with his sermon, putting from the prophet Joel. And then you may feel you're even more confused after that. Yet this event on the day of Pentecost is often considered one of the most significant events in the history of the church. And how is that so? What is its significance? Well, let's dive into our passage this afternoon and, and let's see why. The very first verse of chapter two tells us that this was the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost, as you know, falls on the 50th day after Passover. It's also called the Feast, feast of Weeks. This feast has two meanings, one agricultural and the other historical. It was the day when the farmers would bring in the first sheath of wheat from the crop. This is then offered to God as a thanksgiving, as well as a prayer that all the rest of the crop would be safely gathered into. Pentecost, as the name implies, was celebrated 50 days after Passover. It was also linked to the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, which was thought to be 50 days after they left uh, Egypt during the Exodus. And it is one of the three most important festivals for the Jewish people. In fact, um, in Deuteronomy 16.16, the Jewish men are expected to appear at the temple during these three festivals. Last week, Glenn preached on the ascension. And if you remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, the disciples were told by Jesus before he ascended not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, we're not told exactly where the disciples were at this point in time, but we know they were in Jerusalem, possibly back in the upper room where they met previously. And now as the disciples are waiting together in a house, suddenly three things happen that were clearly supernatural. First, sound. The house that they were in was filled with a sound from heaven that sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Second, sight. 
They saw divided tongues that looked like fire appearing and resting on each one of them. Third, speech. We are told that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. This was not some heavenly language that was unknown to humans. These were human languages that could be understood. Just that they were not native to the disciples who were speaking it. And at this time, uh, there were Jews from almost every part of the known world back then. Well, Connor read for us the places where they came from, so I won't repeat them. But in your handout, you'll see a map of the places where the Jews came from. And it's a pretty extensive list from very far, far off places, at least from Judea. And these people were in Jerusalem celebrating Pentecost. They heard the sound and came to where the disciples were. And from verses 6 and 8, we are told that the people who heard it were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own native tongue. Now it's a bit like hearing Samuel here, Dr. Samuel, you know, speaking Irish. And, oh, wait a minute, he does speak Irish. And in fact, he speaks it quite well. Right, but no, more like him speaking Hokkien, which is one of my, my native tongue, one of the dialects of the Chinese language, of which probably there are about two or three in this room who would understand it, right? And what's happening? What does this mean, they ask? These three experiences by themselves are natural enough. After all, what can be more natural than sound, sight, and speech? We experience it every day. In fact, right now, you're experiencing it because you are hearing and watching me preach. Unless, of course, you're falling asleep. Uh, but yet, these were clearly supernatural, both in origin and character. The noise was not wind, but sounded like it. The sight was not fire, but looked like it. And the speech was in languages that were not native uh, to the speakers. But if you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because wind and fire they are both common biblical symbols for the presence of God. I mean, for instance, the Greek and Hebrew word for spirit are the same word for wind and breath. And likewise, you see the presence of God in a burning bush, for instance, appearing to Moses or to the people of Israel uh, as a pillar of fire, leading them at night in the wilderness after they left Egypt. And this is exactly what Jesus told the disciples just before he ascended, wasn't it? He told them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you, you see that in John chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. Christine, would you read for us? And then in John 16, go for it. Thank you. 
And so with the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was sent. The sound of the wind, the sight of the tongue of fire resting on disciples, they pointed to the coming of the Spirit upon the disciples. Well, think of this as an analogy. Queen Elizabeth, she died in September last year. And with her death, with the death of the queen, King Charles rose to the throne. This is now the new era, as far as I'm concerned, the era of King Charles III. And on that day, the traditional proclamation would be, the queen is dead, long live the king. You see, this simultaneously announces both the death of the previous monarch and asserts the continuity of the monarchy by recognizing the new monarch. The queen is dead, long live the king. It was a sort of a passing of baton of sorts. Well, in the same way, as Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. And now this is the new era of the Spirit. But the big difference is this. Jesus is not dead. If anything, he's very much alive. In fact, he's now enthroned in heaven and continues to intercede on our behalf. And in his place here on earth, he sends the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was the inauguration of the new era of the Spirit here on earth. And because the Spirit has now been sent, all the people of God can now always and everywhere benefit from his ministry and equipping. And so the significance of Pentecost, firstly, Pentecost ushers in a new era of the Spirit. Well, secondly, Pentecost inaugurates a new people of God. To understand how this is so, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 4. And just as a background, if you've got the Bible, turn to Genesis 11. Uh, two chapters before that, in chapter 9 of Genesis, we saw Noah and his family rescued from a flood. Just eight of them, right? Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. And then in chapter 10, we saw a whole chapter listing out Noah's descendants through his three sons. You have Shem, Ham, Japheth. And it was what would be called the Table of Nations, chapter 10 of Genesis. And so we come to chapter 11. Him, would you read chapter 11 for us? For ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Thank you. You see, in case you miss it, and if you read further down in Genesis 11, God is not pleased with that. Let us make a name for ourselves. Pride. That's pride. Right? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That's disobedience. Uh, because God had asked the people, if you remember early on, two chapters before that in Genesis chapter 9, God had asked the people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. But the people were resisting that. They didn't want to be dispersed. They, didn't, they wanted to make a name for themselves. 
And so God confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And in verse 9 we read, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. That's the Tower of Babel. That's the incident there. Now fast forward to the day of Pentecost. We have Jews from every nation here in Jerusalem. And as John Stott puts it, Luke, the author of Acts, the book of Acts, deliberately includes in his list the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and has given us in Acts chapter 2 a table of nations comparable to the one in Genesis chapter 10. And we have the apostles and disciples filled with the Holy Spirit witnessing to them. All these people from the different nations are hearing in their own native language the mighty works of God being proclaimed. No language bearer, no more confusion of language like what happened at the Tower of Babel. And we read that a group of people in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. And they said to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? But once the people had a chance to hear Peter's sermon later on, right after this, we are told that they were cut to the heart. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. They asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And we know what they did. Look at verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. It tells us that they received the words of Peter and were baptized, 3,000 of them. On the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit reverses the curse of Babel and unites the people to form a new humanity in Christ. We call that the church. And this church, this new humanity in Christ is also a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Because you remember, God had promised Abraham that through him, all the nations would be blessed. And here, people from all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, we know there were Gentiles there because verse 11 of Acts chapter 2 tells us that there were proselytes present, right? And what are proselytes? They are basically Gentiles who are converted to Judaism. So people from all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, came, heard, and saw what happened, and they repented and were baptized, becoming part of the church. And so secondly, Pentecost inaugurates a new humanity, a new people of God. Firstly, Pentecost ashes in a new era of the Spirit. Secondly, Pentecost inaugurates the new people of God. Now, thirdly, Pentecost launches a new mission for the world. In response to the question by those who asked, what does this mean? Peter preaches the first apostolic sermon to explain. And to the skeptics who witnessed all this for what happened and then accused the disciples of being drunk, Peter said, no. It's a, it was only 9 a.m. in the morning, way too early to be drunk in those days. Well, I'm not sure if it applies today, but... And anyway, since when did being drunk enable you to speak a new language? I mean, if that was true, 
will all be drunk before our language exams here at the university, isn't it? Well, Peter didn't say that I did. But if you really want to know what happened, Peter tells them, listen to what the prophet Joe said. Verses 17, 18, Simon, go for it. Thanks, Simon. Peter quotes from the prophet Joel uh, in Joel chapter 2. And just as a background information, uh, the book of Joel is not a very familiar book with most people. The prophet Joel in the book of Joel was using uh, a locust, a plague that happened to warn the people of Judah about uh, God's judgment. Joel's telling his people that the plague that they suffered was nothing compared to what will happen on the day that God brings about his judgment on humankind because of our sins. And so Joel's plea to the people is for them to repent and to return to the Lord. And when they do that, God promises to bring about renewal. And as a sign of that, God promises in the last days to pour out his spirit on the people. Peter is now telling his listeners in Jerusalem that the last days are here. This is it. The time has come. The promises are being fulfilled. What they were witnessing that morning in Jerusalem at 9 a.m. on the day of Pentecost is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Exactly what Joel prophesied a few hundred years ago. You might ask, what's this big deal about the Holy Spirit being poured on all the people? What's the big deal about that? And and what's the big deal? What's the significance of having all sorts of people prophesying? Well, well, first of all, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit didn't just appear in the Bible in chapter 2 of Acts. He's been at work since creation in Genesis. In the Old Testament, the Spirit usually fell on a particular individual, often someone of some status, like a prophet or king or priest, in the Old Testament. Think of uh, King David or perhaps Samson, right? But there's no promise of an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people. And that's why King David prays in, in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51 verse 11. But this time, it's different. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost changed all that. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on a lot of people all at once. And as a quote from Joel reminds us, there's no discrimination at all between slaves and free, male and female, young and old. They all received the Spirit. So on the one hand, God is very inclusive. There's no category of people left out, whether by gender, age, or social class. But on the other hand, God is also very exclusive. The Spirit is only poured out on those who call on the name of the Lord, as we're told. And that's why we hear no mention of the Spirit being poured out on the Pharisees and the chief priests 
and so on. And unlike God's people in the Old Testament, since Pentecost, we now have a much more intimate and personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. And John Stott puts it this way, and I quote, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And often in Acts in particular, we read of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit. It means that they are being empowered for service, usually that of proclamation. Which brings me to a second point about the significance of the pouring of the Spirit on all sorts of people and having them prophesy. You see, when Joel speaks of prophesying, when he speaks of visions and dreams, he's actually referring to the same thing, the verb prophesy. As Martin Luther puts it, prophesying, visions, and dreams are all one thing. In the Old Testament, the term prophesying essentially means understanding the revelation of God and having the knowledge of God so that you can pass it on. It's about foretelling. And that's what the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that's what they do. They receive a revelation from God. They understand what God plans to do, and they tell the people, not many people in the Old Testament will have this knowledge of God. They need an intermediary, the prophet. They need them to reveal to them the character of God, his plans, and what he's doing. But if all the prophecies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, if all we need to know about God is revealed in Christ Jesus, or since, as Paul writes in Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God, then everyone who knows Jesus, who is filled with the Spirit, who knows the Gospel, will be like the prophets in the Old Testament. We will know the character of God, His plans, and what He's doing. In fact, we will actually be in a better position than the prophets. Because Jesus said to His disciples in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, He said, For truly I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so what Peter in his sermon is saying here is that when the Spirit is poured out on God's people, we have the knowledge of, God's, of God and his plans. We have the good news of the gospel, but we're not to keep it to ourselves. Like the prophets, we are meant to prophesy. We are meant to tell others about it. Just like Peter and John before the rulers and the elders in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when they were asked to explain what they were doing at the temple, they said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And this is what happened in the first two chapters of Acts. Last week we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, 
Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I want you to track with me here. What is Jesus saying in this verse? Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples and three things will happen. First, the disciples will receive power. Secondly, they will witness. And thirdly, their audience will be the people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. Power, witness, world. And if you think about it, isn't this exactly what happened in Pentecost in chapter, Acts chapter 2? The Spirit came upon the disciples and filled with the Spirit. The disciples received the power to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit enabled them. And what were they saying? We are told in Acts chapter 2 verse 11, the disciples were testifying to the mighty works of God. They were witnessing. And who were their audience? Jews and Gentiles from all over the world who were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. Power, witness, world. Jesus promised in words, in chapter 1 of Acts, now fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. But see this more as a trailer. You know, that three minutes taster you have on Netflix or something to make us excited so that we can, we'll want to watch the whole movie, right? Something to whet your appetite. Something to give you a taste of what to expect for the rest of the book of Acts, the other 26 chapters. Because if you've read through the book of Acts, and we did a, a sermon series on that uh, some years back, what do you have? You have power. Think of all the signs and wonders that the apostles did. You have witness. Think of uh, Peter's sermon, many of Paul's speeches, the martyrdom of Stephen, war. And where does the book of Acts end? In Rome, the capital city of the world in those days. Power, witness, war. And it hasn't stopped since then. You see, Pentecost kicked off a new mission of witness to the world. And it carries on today. We continue to see the Spirit empowering faithful Christians today as they witness in places all over the world. Let me draw to a close. So we have considered the significance of Pentecost. The question now is, how will we then respond? May I suggest perhaps a few ways in which we might respond? The first is to reject its significance. We can rationalize to ourselves, as some of the Jews did, right? How they are filled with new wine. Write it off. Write off the whole Christian faith as something that's perhaps helpful for you, but not so much for me. Christianity is a myth, irrelevant to our present circumstances in this 21st century Toronto. So, one response is to reject. Well, I hope that's not your response. Or we can respond like the 3,000 people gathered that day. They recognize their need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 37. 
After hearing Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? Indeed, what shall we do? For each one of us here, I hope you already have a personal relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't and would like to find out more, please come speak to me or any of the pastoral staff here. And even if you don't feel like speaking or finding out more, come speak to us anyway. Uh, but don't put it off because this is important stuff. For those of us who already consider ourselves as followers of Jesus, let me challenge you. Are we living spirit-filled lives? With the help of the spirit of truth, is there a desire to understand the truth of God's word more and more? Are we longing for fellowship with other Christians made possible because of the unity of the spirit? Are we putting on the character of Christ-likeness, that fruit of the spirit? And are we taking every opportunity to witness by the power of the spirit? These are not options that we tick off when we feel like it. They are the DNA of those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, those who belong to Jesus. Vance Hefner, a pastor and a writer, wrote 100 years ago, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Let me read that for you again. We're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Friends, what's significant about Pentecost is that on that day, the Spirit of God ignited the lives of people from every nation, every tribe, every language on this earth through the faithful witness of the disciples. Their witness added 3,000 souls that day. The Spirit continues to ask that of us today. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.